0: Um, I think I should just put my 100-page teaching sermon away now uh, um, because that was amazing. For me, that's what church is, hearing those amazing stories. And Paul is so right. God is really in the business of doing signs and wonders and miracles among us. Um, And I suppose this teaching journey that we're on through Ephesians um, is an amazing foundation for how we can grow more in the things that God wants us to learn and know and do. And and I firmly believe that when we do that, it brings even more release in some of those things that we've heard. Um, and it's amazing just to have that atmosphere in our family of where we can stand up and say, yeah, we do need prayer. Um, I can confess that being very emotional and my big son standing up, I think for me, he went away guitar player and and came home a worshipper, which is, is all I could ever have, have asked for. So, brilliant. We continue on our theme of the studies in of Ephesians. Sorry. Um, and we move into chapter four. This is a wonderful book, written by Paul the Apostle um, to um, the people of Ephesus, which is modern-day Turkey. Um, And I love the book of Ephesians, and some commentaries that you read would say that um, if we had this book and this book alone, and we read, digested, and applied it to our lives, we would actually live in that total fullness of Christ, and and that, for me, is quite exciting. Um, It's six short chapters, it's not that long. And I like it too because it's short chapters and it's not, it's not like these big, long, mammoth chapters. Um, and you can sort of divide the book up easily into two main divisions. So chapter 1 to 3 are our position in Christ and then 4 to 6 is our walk. And we sort of start in, in Ephesians uh, 4, verse 1. And you see in the very first line, um, we notice something. Paul's words then I urge you. And the sort of the tone and the language in the book um, sort of changes at this point. Paul has just spent three chapters spending loads of time telling us what God has done for us, telling what God has achieved, how through grace we have freely received a new identity, that we're part of this new amazing thing that is all-inclusive Jews and Gentiles called the church. He's also prayed two of the most amazing prayers that I think are just fabulous. And he's longing for the church to grasp these truths in his innermost core and in our innermost being. Why? Because if we don't grab these foundational truths that we learn in chapter 1 to 3, it proves quite difficult to follow through with our walk in chapter 4 to 6. Now if you want to impress your friends um, with some big words, um, and I teach in, in dentistry and, and, and bugs, and it's my um, kind of way, if, when I teach infection control, I have to throw a few words in, because there's some real academics in your audience, so uh, you know, it impresses them, makes them think you really know what you're talking about. So I'm going to throw a big word in here. Um, and the way that we describe the writings in these first three chapters are indicative writing. So it is um, what God has done, what God has achieved for us. Um, And then when Paul moves into chapter 4, his writing changes to what we call the imperative. Okay, Um, And the imperative is a word of command or something that you must do. So in other words, the pattern of this chapter is here's what God has done. And it's done, it's accomplished, it's fulfilled. But here's what you have to do. So in everything that God achieves and does and teaches us in truths, we have a part where we have to put an action to that truth. We have a part to play in it. So basically it's, here's what I've done, now I want you to do, here's what you need to do. Here's what I want you to work at, here's what I want you to actively pursue, to live and achieve fullness in these truth, truths. So I'm just going to read through this firstly. As a prisoner for the Lord then, I urge you to live a life worthy of the calling you've received, to be completely humble and gentle, be patient as Christ apportioned it. So, what's the central imperative in this? What's the central theme that Paul has in this short passage? And we're going to follow through to another few uh, verses later on. But Paul's message and central imperative here is unity. But to understand what type of unity he's talking about, what does he mean by the word unity, we have to actually um, consider the context and the times that he actually wrote this book to the, the people of Ephesus. And what was the picture of the biblical church in that time? We have to move our thought process away from our modern day perception of the church. So, firstly... The early church had no set buildings. It wasn't the early church, the biblical church wasn't perceived by a building. If you'd have said building to the early church, they would have went, what do you mean? That doesn't define the church. And Acts chapter 2 is my favorite part of that. It just portrays this most amazing picture of the early church how they met in each other's houses, how they ate together, how they sat around the table, how they, you know, they longed to learn, they longed to teach. Those that had gave to those that didn't. It's just amazing. There also were no denominations, which would have been fantastic for our country. But they were added long after that by men, not particularly by God. There were no membership ledgers, there were no classes that you had to attend um, that were conditional to you joining that church. The only requirement for joining the church was that you knew and you loved Christ. The only condition. You see, God's church was a group of people who were filled by the Spirit, joined by the Spirit, it was a spiritual entity, not an institution. And that is important for us to understand when we look at the, the subject of unity. Because the subject of unity that Paul's talking about in this um, chapter isn't an organisational unit, unity, it isn't a structural unity, um, it isn't a, a, a church government that we all share the same. What this unity that Paul is talking about is foundationally spiritual. And what does it look like? How does it express itself? Observably relational to the onlookers. Now, what does that mean? I'm going to say that again. The unity that Paul is talking about is foundationally spiritual and expresses itself as observably relational to onlookers. What does that mean? That means that when the world looks at us as a church, that the unity we have should be seen they should be able to see it. They should be able to walk away and say, and question, what is that? How are they doing that? No, I love this picture. <laughs> Poor mummy couldn't tell them apart. <laughs> Identical twins. So um, her solution uh, was to put numbers in their head. I personally just would have put a different colour jumper on them, but anyway. Um, One of the important things to also remember is, when we think about unity, is it doesn't mean uniformity. (laughs) It doesn't mean that we have to walk through life and walk through church and walk through everything being little identical people. It's completely different. It's totally, totally not what God intended for us. Because I believe that God adores our diversity. I think he celebrates in our differences. I think he loves to look at us and he enjoys everything that's individual and different about each of us. He created it. He has to love it. He created it. But for me, that's what makes this unity that Paul is talking about so amazing. That's what makes it so individual. Because regardless of this collection of people's individuality, regardless of their differences, regardless of their little quirks and, and all that kind of thing, unity is achievable. It's what Paul says. That's what God says. And for me, that is very impressive. I don't know about you, but it is to me. I should have ruffled these before. I should have learned that. Okay, so... What is another point to notice about this passage? In verse 3, if you look at it, Paul says, make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. Now, what does that sort of bring out? What that means is Paul isn't saying that we have to make, create, uh, you know, (laughs) make it out of, of, of stuff. We don't have to create it. It is a unity that already exists. It's an accomplished fact. And where do we know that from? Well, God says in Genesis, let us make mankind in our image, in our likeness, so that they may rule over the fish and the sea, and so on and so on. Notice the wording. Let us in our. You were created by a community. That's where you started. You were created in the Father, Son and the Holy Spirit. You were created in a community that already knew perfect unity. It's an accomplished fact. And again, you can see it in John 12, where, where Jesus prays, this amazing prayer, the Last Supper. And he says, "I have given them the glory that you give me that they may be one." As we are one, I and them, and you and me, so that they may be brought to complete unity. The unity is an accomplished fact. What Paul is instructing us to do is maintain it, is keep it, is most importantly, not damage it, which we're going to look at later on. I think the point I'm going to get across is that you were created in a loving, unified community. You were created for a loving, unified community. And inside you, and deep inside everybody in this room, whether you've come to meet Jesus or not, whether you know him or not, and if you haven't, we would love to introduce you to him. That deep inside you, there is a desire and a want to live in that community. To be a part of that community. And when we think about that community, it's a community that runs sort of two ways. And Paul mentioned this um, a few weeks ago. It's a community of unity that runs both vertically to God, but thankfully, it runs horizontally to each other. And it's a wonderful expression of a thing called, um, I don't know if everybody heard the mystical union. If you ever, um, get an opportunity to look at that and read some some things and that is absolutely phenomenal. And that's when we're joined to Christ. But we're also joined to each other. Because the thing about this walk was it was never intended to be alone. It was never intended to be just you and God. It doesn't work that way. That's not how it works. And we're going to see more of that as we go on. God's community is deeply relational with him, but it's also deeply relational with each other. So it's hardly surprising then that as we, when you look at the, the, the passage that we've just read again, that Paul hits us first with a passage about relational unity. So all of those terms that you see there, be completely humble and gentle, be patient, bearing with one another in love, are the ingredients for relational unity. Now, I don't know about you, but Paul, for me, is going for the jugular. He's going for our character. And for me, in particular, this is an area that I find exceptionally difficult. And sometimes when God challenges me on my character, it feels like this massive rock face, that there's never going to be a hope in heaven of me getting to the top of. It's very difficult. But on the other hand, if I struggle with his ability to be able to change and mould and mature and grow my character to be more Christ-like, then am I might not questioning his ability? Am I not undermining his authority over this entire universe rather than just me? And do I not demean his power and the power that that Paul has talked about in these first three verses, the power um, that rose Christ from the dead? What Paul is instructing us here is that if we want this unity, if we want it to work, if we want an organic relationships church to grow, then we must see these character traits. Humility. Positively others centred. And Church, I think you're really good at this. I want to encourage you and praise you. I think it's 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 so encouraging as us as a leadership to see um, you know, things like when, when people have bereavement in their, their family and, you know, life groups come together and they take the meals, you know, practical things and I want to encourage you in that. Putting others first. That everything doesn't revolve around what we are going through. And I encourage you in that church. I think, you know, that's been so evident in our, in our life body. Gentleness. We should be gentle people. We shouldn't be harsh with each other. However, that is one definition of it. But I love a definition that comes, um, that the Full Life Study Bible talks about. And it defines it as restraint coupled with strength. Like strength under control To help and to heal. I think that's beautiful. And for me, I kind of compared it to, um, I'm in the medical field, so I kind of compared it to uh, a neurosurgeon um, who's operating on someone's brain. And it's a bit critical (laughs) that he he gets the right bits and he's not too uh, rough when he's in the brain. But a surgeon who's so precise, who's so gentle in his touch with the brain, Yet he's so powerful with his hands. His hands are so powerful that they can bring healing um, to that brain. Um, And for me, that's a beautiful kind of picture of gentleness. And Paul uses that kind of theme of gentleness throughout the New Testament and other books that he talks about whenever we're called to admonish and counsel one another, um, that we do it with gentleness. Now, patience is literally translated uh, translated the long fuse. Now... (laughs) if my lovely husband wasn't standing at the back (laughs) and my children weren't, teenage children, weren't sitting uh, in the audience, (laughs) I would try to convince you that I was an extremely patient mother and wife and had an extremely long fuse. Um, But unfortunately they're here and they would probably stand up and say hypocrite, you need prayer? Um, You know, and uh, wouldn't look too good. But all joking aside, it is the thorn in my side. And I confess that to you as a church. And it's not okay. It's not okay to be impatient. Why? Because it's not conducive to unity in relationships. It causes damage. And it's not okay for me to say, oh, it's all right, I'm just an impatient person. I'm going to accept that. No, it's not. It's not. Paul says it's not. And you know, there's a saying that really kind of frustrates me. And I used to say it myself. I'm sure us. I, I suffer fools lightly. Have you heard of that? Yeah? Well, actually, if you would just put that another way, it just means that I'm a very impatient person who has no tolerance over what you say because it's not the way I want you to say it and the way I want you to do it. It gives it a different meaning, doesn't it? And maybe maybe think I'll maybe think twice about using it. But I guess what I'm saying is that sometimes looking at these things of character, as I've said, seems like a big wall, and it seems like I can't achieve that. How can I ever achieve that? You can achieve it. God said, I have begun a new thing in you. He has said he will complete it. He has put Everything in place to do it, so sometimes when we were looking at things Paul's teaching us, it seems oh, but it's not and finally, bearing with one another in love, having an atmosphere of grace, not an ethos of three strikes or maybe one strike if you 're a bit like me, and uh, you're right, and that's easy to bear with one another whenever it's all easy going, and we really get on with the person, and you know they're you know um, they're uh, you know quite easy to get on with. But we're not just called to bear with the people who are easy. We're called to bear with the people who are broken, who need that little bit of extra time, little bit of extra ear, and that sort of thing. Paul knows this isn't easy. You'll see he says there, make every effort. It's going to take work, hard work. It's going to take time. It doesn't happen in a click of of, of the finger. And he finishes a beautiful thing there to keep the unity of spirit through the bond of peace or the word shalom. The health and beauty that results from harmonious integration of different parts of of humanity. Lovely explanation of what we're trying to achieve. And then you'll see through in verses four to seven. um, Yep. You'll see through verses 4 to 7, there is one body, one spirit, just as you were called to one hope when you were called. One Lord, get the picture? One. There's seven of them, okay, Um, as Paul goes through it. And what these can be based on, so the first portion is talking about our relational unity, how we relate to each other, something that should be observable to the outside looking in at the church. And then Paul lays these truth bases, truth-based unity. All these truths are outside of our doings, they're outside of our doings with each other, they're facts, we didn't create them and we can't alter them. They're the truths that our unity is built on. And for me, that's what makes the difference for a Christian community than maybe other social communities who can just as much emanate. Um, you know, caring for one each other and and that kind of thing. But when I was sitting thinking about this, I thought, well, why does Paul go to such great lengths? What is the importance of unity? Not just for it's nice and it's an easy life and Paul doesn't have to sort out (laughs) as many things in church. But what is the importance of unity? And there are lots of reasons that we could give, but I'm just going to focus on one, and it's this. It's going back to that prayer of Jesus. My prayer is not for them alone, I pray also for those who will believe in me through their message, that all of them may be one Father, just as you are in me and I am in you. May they also be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. I have given them the glory that you gave me. That they may be one as we are one, I and them and you and me, so that they may be brought to complete unity. Then the world will know that you have sent me and have loved them even as you have loved me. For me, this prayer emanates the importance and the purpose of unity in directing the world straightly to Him. And we could argue that it's maybe one of the greatest tools in our arson for reaching out to our communities. And for me, its purpose is convincing. Um, and I think John White, in it's a book called Fight. It's a handbook for Christian living, if, if anybody's read it. Um, and he puts it beautifully like this. The sight of a loving unity among Christians arrests the non-Christian. It crashes through his intellect. It stirs up his conscience and creates turmoil of longing in his heart Because he was created to enjoy the very thing that you are demonstrating. That is the picture that we are called to be to the world. Why? Because every single person was created in his image. In that community image. And inside of all of us, there is that desire to be a part of it. And thankfully, because of the cross, that's made possible. So, my question before we move on to the the next thing is, what are we doing to keep the unity? What are we doing to develop the unity in our relationships? Are we refining with God's grace and his power and our characters? Or, here's the difficult question, are we doing something that harms the unity? either actively or intentionally through um, you know, uh, dis- arguments and, and, and falling out with brothers and sisters and stuff. Or even passively. Because sometimes we do this and we don't realise, well, we are damaging the relationships. And it's by not engaging or it's easier to stay out of relationships because it gets complicated whenever you get up close to people and you get to know them. So we stay on the outskirts and we avoid relationship. And that has consequences as well, so it's something to think about. And that's where Paul starts with that passage um, of uh, in Ephesians four, and he goes on to talk about. Do you like my slide? Oh, I'm not there yet. Oh, sorry. Sorry. Do you like my slide? That was a killer cool picture. Um, Paul goes on in the next few verses to teach us about maturity. And it kind of makes sense, doesn't it? It kind of, it, it'd be very difficult to have unity if, uh, you know, we had a, a set of, of, you know, if we're all immature. And I kind of think of, have we got sparklers and gems? Any sparklers and gems helpers? Yeah? And, and Leanne? And I'm sure if I brought, and Judith, if I brought you guys up here... And said to you, share some of the things that go on on a Sunday morning. What are some of the things that go on? And for you, so maybe visitors, our gems and our sparklers are the little babies and toddlers, up to, I don't know, about three or four. Um, and I'm sure what they would share would be, um, you know, the weekly fights over the toys. <laughs> that's mine. I want that. Or, you know, I don't really want to share. I want to keep this today. And that's what we expect. And that's fine. They're children. They have to grow, they have to mature, they have to learn, they have to develop, all of those things. But the church is exactly the same. Paul is saying to us, we have to grow, we have to grow into maturity. God's vision for his church is not for, um, to be full of, of, of toddlers and babies. His vision for his church is that we grow, change and mature so let's see what Paul says about this. So we'll read on, verse 8. This is why it says, When he ascended on high, he took many captives and gave gifts to his people. What does he ascended mean? Except that he also descended to the lower earthly regions. He, he who descended is the very one who ascended higher than all the heavens in order to fill the whole universe. I haven't got a clue what that means to you. <laughs> what for me, those sort of verses, they are quite complicated. But for me, what Paul has paid to the picture of, our victorious Lord. Okay? So if you go back to Roman times, when Paul was writing this, um, when the Roman army came back um, as conquerors, they came in chariots. And with their char- in their chariots, they had what you call their booty, right? or what they'd taken from the people that they'd beaten. And the people would have run after the chariot, um, and they would have, the Roman soldiers would have thrown out all these treasures to the people as gifts in recognition of their victory in the battle. And for me that's just Paul is kinda of, is kind of I'm sure there's a deeper theological thing and I'm sure somebody could bring me out not know. But for me what Paul has painted a picture of that our Lord is, you know, he's up there, he is back in heaven, he has all authority to give out these gifts that he's gonna talk about. He's the victor. And when you look at the gifts that, um, that Paul talks about, it's the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the pastors and teachers. and I'm not going into those individually today. We haven't got time. But one thing I want you to notice about those gifts is they're people. Isn't it? Whereas a lot of the times when Paul talks about gifts, it's about talents or, or things that we can do. But apostles, prophets, evangelists, pastors and teachers, they are people. And for me, that kind of stood out to me. How often do we look at our worship leaders and go, you're a gift to me? Or how often do we look at our, our, our small group leaders and say, you're a gift to me? It's amazing. It makes us think in a different way. Now, as we read on, I just want to fly over here. Have you heard of the fatal comma? Anybody heard of the fatal comma? You've heard of the Fatal Comma? Okay. Um, I'll tell a wee story that will hopefully help you explain about the Fatal Comma. So, um, this lady had gone, lucky girl, had gone to Paris with her friends and she was out on a shopping trip. And uh, she came across this beautiful antique in this antique shop. And uh, she really, really wanted it. And so she, being the obedient wife as I am, she uh, emailed her husband and she said to him, I've found this beautiful antique, is it okay if I buy it? And the email came back and said, no price too high. And she thought, fantastic. And she went in and she bargained and she bought this antique. And when she got home, she was surprised to find her, her husband incandescent with anger about her buying this antique. What he'd forgot to do was put the comma in. It was meant to say "no, comma, price too high." The comma can make a great difference to a sentence. And um, if you look at this, this, this verse, verse 11, really leading on to when Paul talks about um, those gifts that I've just said, um, the King James version which was the first translation that we had of the Bible many, 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 many years ago. And actually, do you know, it was so controversial that the reason that it had to go to the king to authorize it to be uh, put out into public knowledge, hence why it's called the King James. But if you read that, um, that verse, and he gave some apostles and some prophets and some evangelists and some pastors and teachers for the perfecting of the saints, comma for work of ministry, for edifying the church. It reads as if, It is Paul and Chantel and all those leaders who are called to do the works of ministry. That comma has been taken out in the New King James Version, interestingly. But no, when you read it in the NIV, so Christ himself gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the pastors, the teachers to equip his people for works of service so that the body may be built up. According to these verses, the roles associated with the leadership in the local church, their task is to equip God's people to do works of ministry. That's you. That's you. That's you. That's everyone in our church. These works of ministry are not reserved for the people sitting in the front row. (laughs) Sorry, guys. (laughs) They are for everybody. I heard a funny story of Steve Nicholson used to shout out to his church, and he's quite a serious guy, and I was quite surprised whenever I heard this. He's a pastor in America. And some Sundays he just used to shout out to his church, who are the ministers in this church? And they used to shout back with a big resound, we are. You are called to do works of ministry in your everyday life, in your work, in your home, in your church, in your community. That's how the body of Christ is pulled up into um, fullness of him. And how do we know we're maturing? Until we reach unity and faith in the knowledge of the Son of God and become mature, attaining the whole measure of the fullness of Christ. Notice the the words that Paul puts in, we all. Paul includes himself, I'm including me, I'm including Paul, I'm including Chantel, I'm including all of us. God calls every single one of us to pursue maturity. It's what achieves what he has determined the church to do. Because our purpose is to be Christ-like. So why he came. He came to die on the cross, but he also came to give us an amazing example of how we should think, how we should walk, how we should react, what we should do. Our goal is seeking maturity in Christ, to be like him, to grow more like him, so that we can be firm in our standing, as these verses say. Then we we'll no longer be infants tossed back and forth by the waves and blown here and there by every wind of teaching That's why we're to be mature. So we can be firm in our standing, wise in our discernment, not swayed by any new fad or eloquent speaker that walks through our door. We're called to speak the truth in love to each other. That truth is God's truth, not our opinions. God's truth from His Word, and always in a context of a loving relationship. It's so hard to do, people. (laughs) So hard. But I stand and I give thanks for people that have spoken to me in love and in truth. Because it's how we grow, it's how we build, it's how we help mature each other. Because that's what it's about. It's about us helping each other mature, not going it alone. We need to grow and become, in every respect, the mature body of Him who is the head. A spiritual, unified, maturing body, each part doing its job so that the body grows strong in unity in the love of Christ at the head. How would that change our time? How would that unified, maturing body change our community? And I'm going to close with this. As Paul says, I'm coming in the land. So what about it, church? Are we up for pursuing this unity? Are we up for pursuing the maturity that Paul talks about? Are we up for refining our characters, for building relationships, for speaking the truth and love within those relationships, for being equipped to do the works of ministry, to be a part of a body that is growing together in the fullness of Christ? See, i finished with this slide because as some of you may know and some of you may not, The word that was given over our church that we believe for this year was grow up, moving on to maturity. But you see, that word won't happen unless we play our part, unless we make the choice to enter into it and and, and have some hard work. So my challenge to you today is, and to me, to all of us, are we up for it? Paul. Paul.
1: Super. We are landed. Um, I just love the church. Like I love it. I love the whole church, the wider church. And I really love this. This is my highlight of the week. Is when we all get together, and we all get to be family, and we all get to share coffee, and we all have our kids running around, and them getting to know each other, and them getting to experience being family. And being held together and work together. And what you do affects me and what I do affects you. Because we're held together. We're joined together uh, by each supporting ligament. It's just brilliant. I just love this thing called church. I know Jesus does. He is the head of us. And he calls us to love one another. And this is our response. It is so important, folks, that we protect and we keep the unity. Because the enemy wants to create disunity amongst us. And that's how churches separate, and that's how they implode, and that's how there's fallouts and all the rest. And our job, all of us, with us leading, is to protect and maintain unity amongst us. And so, folks, w- when there is conflict amongst us, because there is, it is your role as grown-ups, as adults, as mature people, to sort it out between yourselves. And if it kind of gets to a point ever when it's like, oh, it's really affecting lots of relationships, then sadly, we have to step in. And that's all kind of in the Bible too, okay? But we don't want to have to go there because that's awkward and it's time-consuming and painful. So all the time, do what? It's like bear with one another, with love give allowance, give a bit of grace, protect unity. One of the things that we often do when folks come from another church to us is we want to hear your story. It's like, well, why are you coming to us? Is, it, is God calling you to be part of our church? If he is, that's brilliant. Come on in. We welcome you. But sometimes people come from other churches because they're hurt by the church. And there's baggage there and there's pain there and there's um, unspoken conversations that need to take place. And sometimes we've said that to you as individuals coming. And we say, guys, go sort out your mess before you bring your mess here, okay? And that's so important that we do that. Now, that's absolutely right. And there's a conversation, you go and you have that and we're sorry and blah-dee-blah and they, and they send you with their wishes and you come to us and you you leave that behind. You don't let that play out in here, does that make sense? I see a few nods there, which is wonderful. That was great. Your um, our response to that is let's just let's just love one another. There's, there's so much love in the room this morning. Just just uh, just go do that. And do you know the unbelieving world, the 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 people on the uh, who look at church when they see love another. It's it's infectious. They want to be a part of that because they long for community because we're made in his image to be community and I'm in danger of carrying on. I'll shut up. Let's pray and then we're done. God, thank you so much that you love us. Thank you that you invite us into relationship with you and thank you that you invite us into relationship with one another. I thank you that you are the head of this church we thank you that um, despite our differences despite diversity that we are one because of you we pray that you would protect that unity amongst us and help each one of us our children and our teenagers as well, to always seek unity and loving of one another. Help us to create in our midst a culture of preferring of one another, of putting others before ourselves. Amen.